You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Uh, just start off with a little icebreaker question. If you were being humble, you know, and, and you really were being honest with yourself, uh, what is the dumbest fight you've ever uh, participated in? You know, it's the dumbest fight. Uh, uh, I actually heard, um, I'm going to share some Jimmy Fallon quotes, but I heard about this Bert and Ernie that got dressed up in college, and they just drank a little bit too much, and they were down by the bar, and then poor, hide the kids, because Bert and Ernie, I think somebody got mad because somebody was counting Dracula too many times, like one, ah, uh, ah, uh, and they got in, in too much of a, of a rumble and tumble, and they got in a fist fight in front of the kids in the Bert and Ernie uh, costume, and that's just not a sight we need to see. That's not, not a good fight. I don't know if your dumb fight was like that. Uh, or not, but uh, I just wanted to share a couple of uh, Jimmy Fallon, uh, uh, my dumb fight hashtag quotes here, okay? So um, just there on the screen, a couple of, of dumb fights. Are they dumber than the fights that you've ever gotten in? My sister slapped me on the face when my parents were out, so I hit my own cheek to keep it red until my parents saw it. What else is like sibling, uh, being a sibling to do except to make sure that you're, you're your uh, sibling gets punished for the things that they do and the parents don't see. I mean, you are trained. Make sure you cry about it, too. That's really good. Crying about it definitely gets a lot of attention. I rode my bike over to this kid's house. I was supposed to fight uh, this kid, but he had just gotten a Nintendo 64, and so we played GoldenEye instead. So (laughs) if it was Mario 64, I probably would have fought the kid still, but GoldenEye was pretty great. It's pretty solid, pretty solid game. I'll just read a couple of these, um, get going here today for James 3. My brother and sister-in-law fought with over a Scrabble game, and it ended um, with my brother eating the scorecard. No evidence! If there's no evidence, the parent can't get upset about it. If you swallow the scorecard, that's a good strategy. 661 MPAC says, I fought with my uh, girlfriend because she was convinced that the Little Caesar slogan was, eat some pizza. Eat some pizza. Which I was like, once they said that, I was like, I'm not even sure what they said. Is it, is it pizza pizza? It's a pizza pizza? Piece of pizza? I think there's division right now. I think we're getting in a fight right now. We need to pray the Holy Spirit unites us because we're lost right now. Um, my friend was supposed to fight this guy at school. The guy showed up with a white glove and just smacked him with it in his face and left. He just, just like an old duel with like a long mustache, uh, kind of a fight. Uh, Sam Jackson says, my brother and I were fighting my mom, or we're fighting, so my mom made us hold hands and stare at each other until we said, I love you. <laughs> Take notes. You guys could take that one for free. Uh, two more. I got, I got into a fight with my dad because he insisted on the phrase, my bad, was actually my bag. <laughs> Harmless. I feel like we need to give the old guys a break on that one if we do that. Uh, uh, my parents once fought over who makes louder chewing noises. My dad got out a loaf of bread and said, let's settle this. <laughs> it, gets, it gets low down and dirty. And uh, my friend and I were outside making our shadows look like they were fighting, and I accidentally punched her in the face. My dumb fights. Hashtag from Jimmy Fallon. Got a lot of more of those if you, if you want to see uh, any more of those. Uh, really, really got tickled. When you're in the fight, and it's about you, and it's in the moment, and you don't have 10 seconds to cool off, it is so important. It's so important that it's not eats a pizza, it's pizza pizza, or it's not, you know, uh, uh, Nintendo 64 or whatever it is that you want to fight by. Like, when you're in the middle of that fight, it's very difficult to see the silliness of that fight. But if you are seeing it in somebody else in public, if you ever see two people fighting in public, 
you're like, that's the silliest possible thing. And if you were able to look back in retrospect of the fights that you got into, it's a lot easier to see the silliness of the fight next to the, to the seriousness of the fight and the things that, that we're actually fighting about. Um, we are in the middle of a study of James, uh, and I've oftentimes in this series uh, likened James to like a therapist or a counselor. Uh, the theme of James is wholeness. Uh, seven times in the book of James, uh, James uses the phrase that his half-brother Jesus used to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's like, it's like Humpty Dumpty. It's like to be put back together again. And it's, a, it's, I mean, it's the Sermon on the Mount. It's like the, probably the most apt and appropriate way to describe people. Like people pay their taxes. People like invent medicines. They are nice to strangers. They sign their Mother's Day cards. Like when you see human depravity, you have a hard time because it's like not like people are walking around Hitler's, right? But the theory there from Jesus and James is not that people are born out Hitler's. They're born hypocrites that were fractured people. That your parents and my parents and you and me, it's not that we don't have our bright and shining moments. It's just that those bright and shining moments can't really account for some of the ugliness that comes out of the Jekyll Hyde sides of our heart. And so, so when, when James is writing, much like Jesus, he's, he's, not, he's not just writing so that, so that people could be rescued out of hell and into heaven, but also that we would rescue out of fractureness and brokenness and faith without work so we could be brought to wholeness. And that's kind of the theme of, of what James is doing. And so, um, and so he talks about life and growing in faith like a series of tests. And, and there's a money test and, and what we do about, about the pleasures of this world and the treasures. And, and there's this, the, the suffering test of sickness and why would God allow us to happen. But there's also this this, um, this quarreling fight uh, test that he's going to bring up in, in James chapter 3. And so you go to the counselor, and you're really excited because he's going to give you the goodwill hunting speech, and you're going to have the light bulbs turn on, and you're going to get whole, and you're going to get healed, and it's going to be so awesome. And he meets with you three times, and he's like that counselor. He's like a shepherd. He's got a nice um, staff, but he's got this rod, and he, and he speaks the truth to you. Isn't that what you really need in a counselor sometimes? And it's like the third time you meet, and he says, and he says Jill, whatever your name is, he says, We've talked this long, and, and I feel like we've gotten to this point when I can finally tell you the truth. Do you want to know the truth about you? And Jill, you know, you're sitting there like, I don't know. you're going to be nervous. And it's like, well, glad you're a captive audience. You paid the 150 bucks. Anyways, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you the truth. All right, so here's the, here's the, the Morpheus pills. There's a red pill and a blue pill. And if you swallow this, it's a hard pill to swallow, but it's a really good pill to swallow. And it's going to awaken a lot of important things that you need to know and understand. And, uh, and this is what he says to you. It's on the screen. The stuff that you've been talking about with your in-laws and the stuff that you've been talking about with your spouse and the stuff that you've been talking about with your ex and the stuff that you've been talking about with your kids and the stuff that you're talking about with yourself. When you're talking to me about these things, it's hard for you to swallow this, but you have to understand. They are not the problem. This is going to be a big revolutionary thought, and it's very important, and it's very encapsulating. It's pretty universal. All the fights and the quarrels that you get in, all of the fights and quarrels, it's not really a them thing. And hear me out, because I, I understand, like, like in, in a room like this, you know, in, in a room that you would go into <clears throat> if you were going to go see a counselor, like, you have problematic people in your life. Like, people are pretty messed up, and they get mess on you, and there are people that will not respect your boundaries. You'll be like, I, I cannot have you come over to my house unannounced, and they will just continue to come over to your house unannounced and just show up and stay 20 minutes longer and eat out of your fridge. There's people that are just messes, and there are people that are so passive-aggressive. And they are just hinting and jabbing and manipulating. And as soon as you catch them doing it, they're like, oh, me, I don't know why. Why are you so, why are you so mad? Bro, chill, bro, chill. It's a difficult time for the country. Like, there are people that are infuriating. Don't get me wrong. They are, they are bad people. There are people out there that would love to have everyone think as badly about you as they think about you. And they are going around and lying about you and gossiping. And they're taking more than just money and time. They're taking your reputation. 
they're taking your entire name and they're slandering you through the mud. And it's not, so it's not to diminish the problematic nature of, of people, but I want you to know this as you go forward. If you want any kind of healing, like you have problems in your life from people, but they are not the problem. They are not the problem. Have you ever noticed, for example, that when people um, recognize slander and gossip and, and hate and, and offense, um, when, it, when it happens to other people, they don't get nearly as offended and incensed as when it happens to them. The people get mad at slander and gossip that happens to them, but they rarely get as mad or as, as, as obsessive or as, as focused on it when it happens to other people. It's usually that people get frustrated about things that are happening to them and not things that are happening to others. Have you noticed, for example, Dr. James might say is that, you know, people really can be very happy and very miserable separate from their circumstance. Like you could go on a mission trip and see some kid in the dirt who has nothing and was given nothing, and they're just there, and they're playing in the, in the dirt, and they're having a great time. And meantime, you are having this other person who has all the money in the world sitting on the hill, and all the money that they have in that mansion cannot seem to put a price tag and purchase what that kid has in the dirt. Have you noticed this, 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 this problem? Have you noticed this dilemma? Have you noticed that there are people in this world that, that everywhere they go, across ages and different seasons of their life, everywhere they go, that person, wherever they go, drama follows them. Have you noticed that there are people that drama is magnetized to people, and there are people that, as you follow them, it's almost like no drama can be found. Have you noticed that? That there's a disproportionalism in the amount of drama in the drama ratios of life around certain people and not others. Have you noticed this? Have you noticed that full and restful and, and, and peaceful and, and known people seldom, seldom have anything to fight about? Have you noticed that the version of you, when you are feeling completely known and you are, and you are rested and you you know, are, have, have gotten your sleep, right, and you're not cranky, and you're not hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, have you noticed how when, when, when you have those things, you're seldom in fights, and when you don't have those things, it's just a matter of time. You will be getting in a fight today, right? Have you noticed the, 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 the weird, um, you know, tenuous nature of trying to, to understand where, where fights come from? Have you noticed that people are much more likely to fight with people that are closer to them than people that are far off? You can actually have people in people's lives that treat them worse but because they're farther away from them, treat the people that treat them best the worst and people that treat them worse the best. Have you noticed the difference there, right? Because fights are not always come from the same place. And probably this is the most important thing is that have you noticed that Jesus washed the feet of the guy that kissed him, pointing to his betrayal, leading to his death the night before he, he died? Did you know that, that Jesus washed Judas' feet the night before he died, that Jesus faced every temptation and trial that you and I faced and he didn't sin? And so here's what the, the basis thesis of what he's about to say is, is that the cause of all the conflicts that you and I have, the conflicts that you and I have are not really about what's happening among us. They are revealing and showing what's happening inside of us. Like when your dad was a taskmaster and a perfectionist and he was going storming around the house, like you might have left your socks on the floor, but that fight was not about you. That fight existed long before you were probably even here and existed way far from what was inside you. It had to do with what's inside him. And vice versa, that the frustration and the sleepless nights and the walking and pacing and sometimes the prayers that are just complaints, they're actually not about that person that you're praying about. They're about you. And so much blessing is lost when we're standing at the edge of a fence trying to take and demand out of the person that's in front of us so much is lost as we're blaming what God is trying to do in our life on somebody else that is robbing us from just praying and asking for what God wants to give us in the middle of that conflict. Do you understand that the fights that you're in is not really a confrontation between you and him. It's actually a conversation about you and him. 
about an opportunity to receive the thing that you're actually wanting deep down inside. You're fighting and projecting and blaming out here for, for the thing that you should be bringing into your prayer life back here with the Lord. And so fights, give a little illustration, it's kind of like, like two neighbors and a fence. Two neighbors and a fence. You see what I did there? Uh, fights are, are, are two neighbors coming to a fence at the edge of their yard. And fights, he says, really come from coveting. Like, if I'm full, I don't need to fight you. The reason why I'm fighting you is because I'm missing something here. And fighting with people and quarreling with people, not sometimes, always, is about me looking at your grass and telling you to fix my grass. It's me here with dead grass, and I come over here, and the real issue is, which can't get solved until this gets solved, is my grass is dead, and it hurts, and it's hard. And I want something different. And, it's, and I don't believe that God is good. And I don't believe that every good and perfect gift comes from God. And so instead of dealing with God, I deal with you. And fights are, I come over here, and because you have green grass, I am mad at you because I can't see why you would have green grass and wouldn't help me to grow my grass. It's kind of what goes on. Or potentially the person actually does something to you, right? Like they allow their tree limbs to grow up too high so the sun can't get to it, and they toss their clippings and they're totally lazy and irresponsible, and they throw stuff, and they need to own some things that have come across your yard, right? But it's coming over there and choking and demanding that they come and make grass grow, but they can't make the grass grow. Haven't you noticed this, that the people that were trying to punish and hold captive, even if they did something to you to hurt you, unfortunately, you can't go back in the past, and the thing that you really want, the thing that you really need, they can't give you in the first place. So what is the whole point, right, about fights? There are all these tests, the money test and the suffering test, but ultimately the fight test is this, is that nobody can make grass grow but Jesus, He's already said in James 1.17, right? This is the premise of testing. Do you believe this? Do you know this? Do you live like this is true? Do you know that everything good comes from God? Do you know that every good and perfect gift, I mean, not your happiness, but the joy gift and the peace gift and the unbullied, unbribed, unfooled gift to be able to stand against the adversity to love God and love neighbor no matter the price, the real things of life that you actually want, did you know they can't take it from you and so they can't give it to you? And Jesus is the only one that can make the grass grow. And so getting into a conflict, strangling, punishing, and grabbing at somebody else for what they can't give you is the most foolish thing to do in in a possible conflict because they can't give you the thing that you're actually needing and actually wanted because Jesus is the only one that can make Make grass grow. Jesus is the only one that can give salvation and community and purpose and all the good and perfect gifts that we need. So James 4 says it this way. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have. So you kill for it. So you see there, the language, the desire language, is, is that's, that's the Eve word, remember? When she goes in the garden, she looks at something. That's not like a holy thing, a, a thing that I'm going to see the nations come to Jesus and his glory cover the earth. It is like the schmiegel in us. It's that thing that just grapples onto something, and I want something so bad, and I, and I want to, instead of trust God for it, I want to take it for myself. I want to take it on my own terms. I desire it, and so instead of asking God, I go to the fence and I grab your neck for it. This is what quarreling is. I want it, and I'm going to make you try and give it to me. And if you can't give it to me, I'm going to kill you. 
This is the idea. This is what Jesus, and obviously we're not murdering people, but Jesus says in, in, in terms of kill, it just means to have a sense of um, contempt or, uh, you know, slander somebody or, or, or cancel them or, you know, unfollow them or whatever it is that we do. We have consequences because I want to be the king of the show, and if you can't give me what I b- believe I deserve, I'm going to punish you for it. That's what, that's what, that's what quarrels are in terms of James's category. You covet, you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight, and that's all because you don't ask God for what only God can give you, is what he diagnoses there. So if you look at Webster's definition of the word conflict, if you look in your, in your dictionary of the, of, the, of the word conflict, Webster defines conflict as fight, battle, or war, and it's an armed conflict that is competitive or opposing actions of incompatibilities, antagonistic state or action, as of diversion, ideas, interests of persons, or conflict of principles. Now, when I read that, it's kind of like a run-on weird sentence, so I'm not really even sure how all those words come together, but they're not nice words, is the point. And furthermore, if you look at Webster's definition, we have this you know, category like, are you afraid of conflict? How do you handle conflict? Shouldn't we have healthy conflict? According to the biblical definition of conflict, and what Webster is saying is, if I'm reading Webster's definition in a Christian vernacular, according to Webster, there is no such thing as a healthy Christian conflict. Like, the way that the world defines conflict is not how Christians have conflict. Because Christians in and of themselves, and this is a letter written to Christians, are not competitive in terms of they need to be cooperative. They're not opposing. They're for each other, not against each other. And ultimately, they're not incompatible because they're all part of Christ. How can two parts of the same body be incompatible together, to be irreconcilable? If you have Christ together, how is it that you could have enough division that you would fight each other over it? So in, in, in those terms, from a Christian standpoint, whatever you mean by conflict, if he read Webster, he would not say that that is healthy conflict. That is not what conflict is. Because conflict is ultimately wanting something, demanding that it happens, and if it doesn't happen, I punish you uh, because I don't get it. And so it's so easy to see, like, from, from somebody else or from your kids, like, when your kids are fighting, and they're fighting because the one kid got four cookies and the other kid got five cookies, it's really easy to see. This is not about fairness. This is about the kid wanting to get what he wants, right? Or if you were to see a spouse couple or something fighting, you know, out there in public, you know, you always think, like, you know, that you would never do such a thing. But when you see it, you see the kind of ugliness of it and that it's not ultimately, you know, the kingdom of heaven. It's not ultimately something that, that should be a part of this world. You see the ugliness of it sometimes when it's farther away and when it's, when, it's, when it's with strangers. But if you could kind of define the terms, however you want to define conflict, I would say that Webster is saying that conflict is demanding and it's the right of a person to inflict pain and punishment on somebody else when they don't get what they want. And according to the gospel, we have no right on pain and punishment because he took all the pain and punishment on the cross, so that, belongs, that does not belong in the church. When I'm coming into a conversation, I should be checking to myself, is the object and the goal of this conversation to move forward or to move backwards? Is it to hold court to offer pain and punishment for something that I'm feeling, or is it that I actually want to constructively move forward because the definition really matters? So conflict, if it's defined as pain and punishment for somebody else, is not godly. It's rooted in sin is essentially what they're saying with those words demand and ask and take. While conversation needs to be fundamentally about the future, it needs to be about clarifying and looking at the past to understand what happened. It's sharing your hurts for sure and explaining things, but it's drawing the the line on the fence that I'm not going to reach across this fence and grab at you to try and make my grass green. I I surrendered my right to punish you at the moment that I accepted the the, the punishment of Christ on me, and so I I surrender my right to punish you and and, and to try and create pain. So here's, I think, what James would say in terms of how we would do an inverse, upside-down type of a kingdom approach to conflict, and I'm just calling it Christian conversation, is first and foremost, I think James would say this, 
is as you're heading into a disagreement with somebody, or maybe you're going to do that today, have you prayed about it? I think that if the vision here is that it's two neighbors at the edge of a fence with dead grass, the question becomes is before you went to talk to them about something that you want, did you ask God for what you actually need? Because if a person is coming into a thing empty, they're only going to quarrel, they're only going to sin. So I think the first question I want to ask myself is, do I even know why I'm upset that my spouse is so late? And then get to the bottom of that desire, and then here's what I'm necessarily responsible to do before I go and even talk to her or him. I should ask myself, did I ask God for the thing that I wanted? And then secondly, if I'm really there not to punish or to inflict pain on somebody else, if I'm really there for clarity and the construction of the relationship, I should be able to say in two or three words or less of exact things that happened, the exact thing that I would like to change, and also be prepared to offer them the freedom to fulfill or not fulfill that desire at all. So the second question I had is, can you clearly explain feelings, needs, and goals? And then lastly, as I, as I kind of inferred there, is nine out of ten times, if you've been doing any living down on this earth, as you confront people to take on responsibility for their lawn or take blame for something, nine out of ten times, they probably won't. And so here's the way that we need to be ready to, to guard our fence here and guard our heart, really, is as we approach areas of disagreement, when they resist taking ownership and blame, do I have a plan for what I'm going to do without punishing them? Do I have a non-punishing request and a plan for if they reject it? For, because because they, they probably will. So he goes on, and he talks about why even a Christian could continue to be quarrelsome. And he says it's because, uh, it's not because they don't have a prayer life, it's because they're coming to the prayer life with the wrong motives. So it's just one verse, but here's what it says. When you ask, he says, you don't receive. The reason why you're a Christian and you're stewing and you can't sleep at night and you seem to be holding people captive and you're still mad about it, he says one of the things you need to check is not just are you praying, but are you praying with the right motive? Are you praying with the right agenda? Are you talking to God from that, that, that place? He says, when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. You have the wrong agenda. You may be, you may be uh, praying to spend the things that you get in prayer on your, own, on your own pleasures. So maybe I could put it this way, is that James is reminding us that a person down on this earth, let alone a Christian, is always going to be quarrelsome if the goal of their life is their own pleasure. In other words, if the aim of our lives is happiness, we will always be unhappy. The fastest way to misery in your own personal life and then in corporate life is to make your happiness the center of your life. It is the quickest journey to misery. And don't forget, especially Christians, to understand that the agenda of your life is not happiness, but that the highest and most fulfilling agenda in your life is, in fact, holiness. That, that to have happiness on the side of a beach with a Mai Tai with everything going right is going to be unhappy because you weren't made for that happiness. You were made for his holiness. And if you shoot your, your arrows short of the goal and the purpose of your life, you shouldn't be surprised when God makes you unsettled in reaching a goal that was lower than the one he has for you. The, the existence of your life, the purpose and the point of why you have breath in your lungs is not to be happy. It will lead to unhappiness because that is a, that is a diminishing uh, expression of who you were created to be. You were not created for happiness. You were created for holiness, and anything less than that is going to make you unhappy. So I'm uh, in this little midlife crisis moment right now. I'm about to turn 40 in January, and so uh, I go to the, the app that's clearly going to make you the most unhappy in your whole entire life, you know, if you spend too much time on it, which is Instagram, and yet I still persist, you know. And so you go on Instagram, and everybody's got the great life, and, and, and happy, and I'm 40, and I'm like, oh, what if I miss it? What if I missed it? What do I, what, what do, I need to do for the rest of my life? And uh, there, was this, uh, there was this guy on there, and he used to be a pastor, and he still is a pastor, and he's a great guy, and ultimately what he was saying was not wrong. It was just that I think I let it kind of slither into my heart in the wrong way. And he's a life coach, and he's, and he's just talking about, you know, grabbing life uh, by, by, by the reins, you know, and he's, and he's just like, you know, you got to have, you got to have purpose for your life. And, 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 
Like, the, life is urgent. It's, gonna, it's just gonna, it's just gonna drift away from you. If you're not awake, if you're not alive, your kids are gonna grow up like this and, and life's gonna fly by you and you're gonna be working and working and working and you're not gonna live your life. And this is what he said at the very end. He says, and listen, you gotta live your life because this is your life. He said, this is your life. And I'm like, yeah, it's my life. Like, it's, it, just, it just got to this little place, you know? And, I, and I'm turning 40 and so, you know, I've got my little bucket list. It's like, I gotta take the kids traveling. Like, I grew up traveling. I gotta take the kids traveling. I mean, what, this is my life. What am I going to do? Just plan sermons all the time and give sermons on Sunday and not go traveling? I got to go travel. I got the travel thing and I got to, and, 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 oh my goodness, like I, I, I'm not um, hobbying enough. There needs to be a hobby. I'm going to take up water skiing or piano or cello or something. Like I got to, I can't just be a human doing. I have to be a human being and I got to go, this is my life, you know? And I'm just, you know, and, and I'm, and I'm not so sure, honestly, in wrestling with all that, I don't, I don't disagree with the part of the, this part, like this this, right here, right now, I, I totally think that that is a, a kingdom joy and something that God would usher in, like, be in the moment and be present in his presence like this. But I think the part of it that probably was augmented the wrong way is the my part. I was going on a three and four week really spiral, and it was a very slow thing of just, you know, just being a little bit more anxious and being a little bit more short, and I'm saying things that I would be out of character, you know, jabbing and things, and I'm just basically not happy, you know, although I'm, like, aiming at happiness more than ever before. It's the irony of that. And I just go on this walk one time, and, and, and Jesus just says to me, Oliver, like, this is not your life. This is my life that I gave to you, and it is a good life. And if you were to even get a glimpse of the full delivery, finished product of, like, what I want to give, if you were to see what the life I gave you is going to look like on full display, you wouldn't want anybody else's life. You would run from any dream that would drag you down any trail against any other life. I am the way, the truth, and life, and anything, anyone that tries to aim at another life is going to end up losing their life. They're going to lose their life. And so I just want to just confess to you and, 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 and speak to you and, and even have coffee with you in a communal sense of like, I want you to know, like, the American dream is alive and well today in our midst. We think that because, you know, we're less materialistic maybe um, than, than our parents were, and we have smaller houses, and we spend less money on furniture or whatever, and we live kind of bohemian, little, like, um, <clears throat> you know, simpler, uh, holistic lifestyle that we think that we're immune from the American dream. It's like the American dream doesn't care what we wear. It doesn't care what we eat. It might be a, a $15 brunch, or it might be having a bunch of kids in homeschool, or it might be raising chickens, or it might be uh, it, it might be, you know, starting up a business like the American dream. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It will put on whatever clothes it, it can put on you as long as it has you living for you. The essence of the American dream is not a 401k and a polo and a, and a golf cart and, and khaki pants. It will wear whatever it is that it needs to wear to get you living for you, get you aiming at happiness because it's less than what uh, ultimately you were designed to do. So this is the way that C.S. Lewis talks about it. It says, um, it would seem that our Lord finds that our desires which are not bad things, our desires are not bad. They're just not strong enough. He says our desires are not too strong, but they're weak. You have weak desires. He says we, have half, we are half-hearted creatures and we fool around with drink and sex and ambition and, and, and all the while we forget that there's infinite joy offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Like he's, in other words, you can call it Christian, but it's really Buddhist. There is a Christianity that is basically desires are evil. Don't have any desires. Thy will be done without them, I will be done. 
But there's also a version of Christianity that's just straight hedonism. You're great. You deserve to be great. Start your business. It'll be great. There's a side of Christianity that's basically hedonism that says that the, the goal of God is to make you happy, and that's a lie. As much a lie as any other lie, that's a lie from the pit of hell. And so the, the idea is here not to have no desires or to dive into your desires, but it's to disciple desires. That actually, he says, we're aiming, both hedonism and Buddhism is too low. We're aiming too low because we were created for a higher desire, which is his will be done. And the only happiness we will ever find on this earth is, yes, discover what it is your desire. You need to be emotionally healthy, and you need to know what your desires are, and you need to know what your dream is, and you need to know what makes you come on fire. But here's what ultimately will lead to your happiness and your joy, by the way, is when you find out the desire, you've got to put that under his desires. He's going to say, my will is a great will, but it's not, it's, not near, it's not good as your will. Your will is better for my life than my will is. And I will be fleeting and, and, and swinging and grabbing and fighting people about the happiness that I think I deserve until I really aim myself at, at true happiness. And this is what true happiness is. I just got three words for you. It's a simple vision statement. You can do it with $30,000 a year. You can do it if you're sick on a hospital bed. You can do it in the middle of a fight with your spouse. It's real simple, but it's really good. And here's what it is. Wake up tomorrow and make him happy. You have the ability to put a smile on God's face. And that is the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit is the ability to make God happy. And that is the only thing that will satisfy you. And it has no price tag. It has no price tag because Jesus paid for it. And you can go run after that life. You can run after any other life and see yourself run into misery. Or you can run at that life and there is a promise in the kingdom of heaven. If you lose your life in my, for my sake, you will find it. This is the vision. Make him happy. It's that simple. It's that simple and can't be taken. So he, he kind of characterizes, he, he closes this up, and he characterizes really what, where quarreling comes from. It comes from a misunderstanding of really who we are, and it comes from a misunderstanding of why we even exist in the world. And he, and he calls us, when we are active in this quarreling mindset, he calls us acting like enemies. He calls us acting like the other team, like in the worldly sense. So he says in verse four, he says, when it is that we're quarreling, what we're doing, what we're mimicking and acting out and playing a part in is an adulterous people. You are an adulterous people, he says. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Like, I could be faithful to Kyra with my money and faithful to Kyra with my um, other relationships. I can be faithful to Kyra on, on, on Christmas, you know, I can be fit. But, but if I am not faithful to Kyra in my attitude, I'm really not faithful to Kyra at all. This is an all in. This is why he says jealous. I, that's why holism is so important, holisticness in terms of faith and works, is because he doesn't just want 10% of your money. He wants all of your life. He wants all of your life. And so here's what's interesting about this, if you pay attention. Verse 5, or do you think Scripture says without reason that he is jealous and longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace in why the Scripture says he opposes the proud? He holds up a friend and an enemy, and we think the world, when we say, hey, you're living by the world's standards, that we think that means entertainment activities. We think that going by the world means we drink and we chew and we listen to the wrong rock and roll and we, and we do drugs and we, and we have sex the wrong ways and all these types of things. And I'm not saying that that's not the category of the world, but that's not what he's talking about. What's interesting is he's not talking about a list of entertainment. He's talking about a system of thought. What he's saying is, it's not just about what you're eating and talking about and drinking. It's how you treat people that you don't like is really one of the designations of world versus friend. So in other words, you could abstain from sex and drugs and rock and roll, but if you are slandering people that do, you are still acting like an enemy. You could stand on all the right issues, but not expend the right love on the issues that you're doing, and you still qualify as active enemy activity. God opposes the proud, he says, and shows favor to the humble. 
Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. This is what's really, here's the hard thing. When somebody comes to your fence and throws clippings over your fence, that sucks. Like, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm not, don't hear me say I'm diminishing the pain and the ugliness that people do to you. But, but here's even what's even harder than the fact that they throw clippings on you, is that if you get fixated on those clippings, it robs you of your opportunity to draw near to God. And the test here, the test here is just as much as will you be tested by money, is will you be, will you be driven by the offense or will you be drawn towards God's heart? And you will miss 10 and 20 and 30 years focusing on that offense, which it is an offense, but realizing, but misunderstanding and, and, and mismanaging the scope of the offense of what this thing is really here to do. All of these events, everything that's happening to me are me to draw, are for me to draw near God and get my grass green. Because he's the only one that can make the grass green. He's the only one that can really bless me in the ways that I need. Submit yourselves to one another, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter into mourning and joy into gloom. Humble yourselves. That's the main point of the sermon, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he, he will lift you up. He will lift you up. Not just what are you fighting about or the issues that you're standing on, but the way that we go about our disagreements and quarrels designates whether or not we're experiencing the life of a friend or a life of, of an enemy of God. And so then he says in verse 11, brothers and sisters, don't slander one another. Like, why? Why is that kind of a conflict? Like, other than go to the neighbor's yard, and I'm talking about your spouse or the guy that you hate the most at work, ask him for something, listen to whether or not he's going to ask, he's going to meet that request, and then release him to God if he does or he doesn't. That's pretty much what it is. Because anything more than that, he says the reason why it's a sin is because it's slander. It's you sitting on the law rather than coming under it. It's playing God. Brothers and sisters, don't slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or sister judges them because they're sitting on the law and playing God. And here's a person that can't get near to God, a person that is God. A person that's sitting on the law playing God can't be near to God because by definition, they're playing God and there's nobody else to come near to. I'm the only one that has to hold the line, define the wrong and issue the punishment and offer the judgment. That's a lot of weight for you to bear, right? So he says, that's what's happening when you're, when you're fighting is you're trying to be God. Verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you... Who are you to judge your neighbor? So I think it really sums up in a very simple statement here of, of what I think he would pastor and, ther- and, and counsel us to do, you know, in our, in our quarrels, because these are happening all the time with us. As he would say, the low man wins. Have you ever um, uh, played basketball before? Um, we, uh, I used to coach it upward. It's the worst. Every year they make you, they have you pay the $200, and then they make you coach. And I'm like, I don't... I could have gone down to the playground and just got a bunch of kids together and saved ourselves the money. The 200, I paid the $200. Why am I coaching for you? Anyways, but they don't send you that email until you already sign up. So anyways, that's how that goes. But every year, you know, you're like, I got old Jimmy John and he can't see. So how is he supposed to play basketball? You know what I mean? And so like, you're just kind of like your crowd control. And, uh, but then, you know, then there's always the Cobra Kai. And I, and I don't mean this in a bad way. I mean a completely good way. There's like always this one team in Upward that like wins all the time. And you're like, gosh, how are you winning at Upward all the time? You know, and I know we don't keep score, but I keep, I keep score and you're winning a lot. <laughs> and uh, you feel like I'm letting this kid down. Maybe he's like a, he's a diamond in the rough. I need to like, you know, harness his latent potential and keeping him from going to Duke. And so, um, and so Andrew Wilson, he goes to our church. Andrew Wilson, he wins at Upward. I mean, what kind of, you must just eat 
just champion for breakfast if you get up and win at Upward. I'm telling you, it's not an easy, easy crew. He wins at Upward. And I took him to lunch one time, and we were talking about the gospel. But then after that, I wanted to ask him, how do you win at Upward? And I was like, dude, I just need to know, how do you do it? He says, it's real simple. He said, you know, you know, you know how you win at Upward. He said, you, you know, you're a Stephen Curry fan. He's like, here's the thing. Everybody sees Stephen Curry, and everybody thinks they're Stephen Curry, but they're not Stephen Curry. Like every kid, if you go see, they dribble the basketball and they come into the thing and they just start hurling up basketball <laughs> shots. And they think that the more that they're just hurling up basketball shots, they're not saying, but the thing about Stephen Curry is he's the only Stephen Curry and there will never be another Stephen Curry. And that's the problem with today's NBA. Totally another grudge that I have about the NBA. But Stephen Curry, not all the kids are Stephen Curry. And so if you really want to win at upward basketball, all you need to do is just get really good at rebounding. Because there's a lot of balls that are just getting thrown up in the air and you just catch them. And a lot of them aren't going in if you happen to be in the right place at the right time. And so all you really need to do to win at upper basketball, you don't need to shoot, you just need to rebound. You get enough rebounds, and you throw enough of those things up, and you'll have more chances, more opportunities to, to score baskets. And that's the thing about rebounding, if you've ever done any basketball before, it's the low man wins. You can do it with football, you can do it with wrestling, and same thing with basketball. The dude could be seven feet tall, but if you have a position on that person, and you're low enough, gravity's your friend, and it's not their friend, and you will win. You will tabletop them or do something else, but you, if you establish your position, and you make a decision ahead of time, I'm going to be low. I'm going to put my strength under this other person, and I'm going to keep the ball in this court right here so I can get this rebound. If you only rebound, you will win, and you will win every time. It's a strategy that doesn't need, you don't need to warm up. You don't need to have a good game. You don't need to be in the moment and practice meditation. You just need to get down low and rebound, and you'll be okay. I think this is what I get out of this whole thing, is that if you're in a conflict, how many of you guys have ever seen somebody in a conflict who thinks they're right, but they're utterly wrong? How many know that that's a good chance that that's you, Okay. And so the strategy is, even if you don't know what's right or wrong, and you feel twisted up in their words, and you know they're not 100% right, but you're not really sure how you're wrong, I think his advice would be, the low man wins. If you will get down and just duck, God will take care of the situation. And if you get low, here's the thing, is if you happen to be the person that was wrong but doesn't know it, and you get down low, the Bible is saying, you are, you are dodging his, his, his opposition. That God opposes the proud and uplifts the humble so, humble. so even if you don't know if you're right or wrong, if you get low, you still win. God will lift you up. You do not want your own vindication because then you're going to have to live by it and die by it and defend your own reputation. If you will just get low, he will lift you up. And you want what he has to give you, not what you can go and take for yourself. And secondly, Romans says that if you're kind and loving your enemies, he'll heap coals on you, which sounds like the big, geez, like Jesus juke ever, is quite, quite truthfully, if you will get down low, God will handle that person and he'll handle that person in a way that will save them, not judge them. Because if you get in a fight with them, you're probably just going to judge them, and you're going to hurt yourself, and you're going to hurt them. So the answer to both the questions is if you're right, if you're right and they're wrong, or if they're right and, and, and you're wrong, is to get low. If you get down low, then God will lift you up. He opposes the proud, and he uplifts the humble. What matters most about fights is not about necessarily who wins or loses, but who communicates as an enemy and who communicates as a friend. Who will go low? Who will go low? So um, I want to invite the band to come forward, uh, maybe as we just consider some of these scriptures, but I have the um, intentional question there up um, on, uh, on the front, and maybe if, if you guys would, would play for us, that'd be great, um, but I just wanted to even do some reflection before communion on these three questions. The question I have for you uh, this morning is, do you fight as a friend or an enemy of God? Is your intention to come forward to offer clarity, vulnerability, truth, honesty, but not punishment? Do you come understanding that God, only God can bring green grass, so I'm not going to lose my character 
over what you can't give me? Are you, are, you, are you over the fence trying to punish and cause pain for the person to play God, or are you under God asking for him for what only he can, he can give you? Do you want take and kill, or do you pray, ask, and plan? Nine out of ten times, you're going to go to them, and they are going to deny your claim. Nine out of ten times, they're not going to do you right. What are you going to do about that? This is your opportunity to, 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 to grab at the grass clippings that are over your fence or go draw near to God and get close to him on it. Number two, did you evaluate your why or do you evaluate your why? Is there any place in your life that you're leading to misery because you're aiming at happiness? That is too low. It's not that God doesn't want you happy. It's just that your aim is too low because you were not made for just happiness. You're made for his holiness. Do you make God happy? Do you live for the smile of God on your life? Is the smile of God on your life enough? Because if it's not enough, then nothing will be enough. A nice, a long walk with a good friend in the sun with God is our portion. Our, our boundary lines have fallen on pleasant places in Christ. That's what Psalm 16 says. If that is not enough for you, then nothing will be enough. Do you live to make God smile? Lastly, do you know that every good and perfect gift comes from above? The reality is they are going to throw glass clippings and they are hurting you. They are taking years from your life. They're taking reputation that you can't get back. Forgiveness is not just sweeping things under a rug and saying things didn't happen. It's not not speaking the truth. It's just understanding the source of who can fix the truth. It's understanding who can repair and who can give grass and who ultimately is giving things that can't be taken away. Do you know that everything that you need is in him and everything he has is yours? Do you know that every good and perfect gift comes from above and if he has given it to you, then really nobody can take it. They might be able to take your happiness, but they cannot take your joy. They cannot take your unbullied, unbribed, unfooled stance to love God and love neighbor for all your days. That is the good portion that Jesus wants to give us and they cannot take it away from you. Do you know that every good and perfect gift comes from above? Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.